when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Oh, hello, it's Thursday, and it's time to welcome you to Waypoints, where the Waypoint staff and friends take a break to nerd out and deep dive on the culture, art, and entertainment that's been inspiring and provoking us lately. Gathered around the table this Thursday, we've got Danielle Riendo. Hi, hello, how are you? Not bad. How are, how are you doing on podcast two of the day? <laughs> I'm doing now, very now that well. Now I made you talk for two straight hours. <laughs> I'm doing well. I, uh, I spent a lot of time uh, in history. Uh, this week, as you'll as we'll see today, but also you know with with the history of a of a beautiful Jane Austen adaptation and a history of a, a cultural revolution. So, and we also have Patrick Klepek. Yeah, here I am, <laughs> right here, just for you, Rob. You told me All to show energy. up. I'm here. I'm <laughs> here. When does Austen come back? Uh, <laughs> not sure. I feel I like it's, it's negotiable. Never. It's a little bit negotiable. <laughs> Increasingly less so from my perspective. <laughs> anyway, no, sorry, I don't mean to drag you, Patrick. I love you. You know I love the energy you bring. All right. I love here your bromance. Can I can I just say I I love y'all's beautiful bromance. I want you all to watch football together uh, and have snacks together, football snacks together, and uh and drink beer. All the Hell all yeah. the all the sports meets. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Please eat some sports meats together. Well, it's not ham. I'm just not not into ham. Okay. All right. Like a bite of uh, ham. That's it. Speaking <laughs> of people not being into things, Patrick. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it looks like the reviews are in. Captain Marvel sucks. Oh. Yeah. Um, Which is weird because <laughs> it's not, not out. out yeah. But the fans have spoken. I. All right. So. Hmm. I cannot believe that this is how I've not really paid attention to Rotten Tomatoes. I don't know if any of you like, I guess we can get into that. Maybe after we can talk about how we use aggregate sites and data to like sort of inform our uh, cultural interest and what we watch and don't watch. But uh, so I uh, came across a story, you know, I'm a huge fan of the MCU. I follow film a lot outside of video games. Um, And so kind of impossible not to, um, have stumbled into there's a piece on comicbook.com uh, called Captain Marvel Review Bombers have dropped Rotten Tomatoes audience rating to lowest in MCU, written February 22nd, 2019. And as you uh, mentioned, Rob, uh, <laughs> Captain Marvel does not come out for like, well, as of this recording, I think another week, but as of that writing, um, two weeks. Uh, and yet somehow it had been review bombed into being the lowest rated in, in sort of Marvel's run so far. Um, and that's like a it's like a user rating that is like separate from a critic rating um, used on the aggregate site Rotten Tomatoes. Um, and then in the aftermath of that, uh, uh, Rotten Tomatoes announced that, hey, so you can no longer rate a movie that's not out yet. <laughs> Which that got... Apropos of nothing. 
<laughs> well, honestly, like the way they wrote their bit. Um, oh, I don't know if I. Uh, I, I want to pull up their actual uh, statement because it was, you know, written very sort of matter of factly. Like, hmm, you know, we've had a we've had a talk. Um, I'll just try and find it. But anyway, <laughs> okay. like, uh, you know, it's it's it struck me as completely strange that that was even a policy to begin with, given that even if you don't follow uh film like i'm sure you've at least heard of like the term review bombing if you you know in games it's very common especially on steam review bombing is a tactic used uh in which we just talked about it with the devotion podcast yes yeah we just talked about devotion um um and like it's a common tactic used by folks to target games for some specific reason more often than not it is related to you know quote-unquote social justice issues whether it's like race or sex or gender um it can be you know it it is meant. It is meant to be used. In, well, hold in on. The sense to be clear, though, uh-huh. it's not like I'm being. I'm like. It's not like people are going out there being like, "Yo, this is not woke enough. We need to like tank this thing." Score. So it's not like the it's not like social way. justice. It's, yeah, that's right. It's like the social justice brigades are like comrades. We must storm the barricades of Rotten Tomatoes and really strike a blow against. I mean, look. I mean, believe, maybe something enough. should have been done about Green Book. Maybe we all failed and like should have like mobilized as consumers to tank that fucking movie, but we didn't. Uh, and so it usually happens is. Something like this, uh, or or the Last Jedi, where it's like, yeah, hey, it's Black Panther, like nearly all black cast, like Last Jedi, a movie that like sort of both as a female lead, um, but uh, uh, also uh, you know is something that sort of stomps on the mythos of Star Wars in kind of a not quite a middle middle finger sort of fashion, but one that like deconstructs the thing that people like about Star Wars or thought that liked about Star Wars, and then Captain Marvel. Um, you know, not the first uh, uh, comic book movie to star a woman. That was, you know, Wonder Woman kind of got that uh, sort of out of the way. But, you know, the first one in, in Marvel's universe. And so there's a, yeah, there's a very specific pattern of the kinds of people that are targeting these films. But I was just, at first, just taken aback that, like, th- this was even the policy in the first place. I guess they also announced that they were going to uh, additional tools that will prove that you saw the movie. Because Fandango, and this is where I started going down, like, a deeper rabbit yeah. hole with this, was like, I just didn't. I have not never quite understood the relationship that Rotten Tomatoes, the cultural uh, power that Rotten Tomatoes not just has amongst, I understand it sort of amongst fans because we see this in video games. Like we see where people take uh, uh, little spots of perceived power that they have to make a point. That happens in uh, review bombing on Steam. That in the past has happened with Metacritic. Seems like less so of a thing these days where aggregate sites just have Maybe the notion of Metacritic has just moved more to like Steam reviews. I don't, I, you know, I just seemed like that used to be more of a thing in video games and it's less of a thing these days. Um, and that just got me reading all these articles about Rotten Tomatoes, like as a website. Um, there's, a, there's a couple um, I'll link out to. There's one from uh, uh, Vox called Rotten Tomatoes Explained, and then one from the LA Times called How Rotten Tomatoes Became Hollywood's Most Influential and Feared Website. And I guess I just, I just didn't realize that like, I guess like maybe I knew that Fandango bought Rotten Tomatoes a couple of years back. And then one of the big changes they made was that because they were purchased by Fandango, a place that people buy tickets next to where you buy tickets, they started putting the fresh or rotten mm. uh, aggregation and then the user engagement sort of metric next to where you buy the ticket. And then yeah. what studios started finding was that while it can't necessarily, like the, the notion that Rotten Tomatoes can like make a movie flop or succeed is, is overblown um, for a movie that, has bad of word of mouth and is hopefully just relying on trailers. Like it, it can it can make a bad movie 
perform worse and it can make a, a good movie perform better. And so it does then have like, uh, can't have a meaningful impact on sort of the box office. And as such, uh, it's it's given both a lot of weight by studios. And then that's also why fans have since come to find Rotten Tomatoes as like a very powerful uh, weapon to wield because it thus allows them to uh, do things like uh, drive away, like on The Last Jedi in particular, so like critic reviews were like 93% and then the audience score was like 51. And then Fandango put out a fucking tweet that was like, wow, critics and audiences split on The Last Jedi. Like, what do people think of that? Right. Um, God, that's right. Like very much playing into and normalizing and encouraging like the awful, horrible uh, behavior of uh, the most toxic elements of the Star Wars fan community. Um, and yeah, so like it's just all just weird. It's a weird website. It was a it's, a it's a whole weird thing that I just didn't quite. It helped me grasp like have a better understanding. Of, like when I see these stories, why is every film site fucking writing about it? Like I don't understand why an aggregate website is given so much goddamn importance. And then once you realize it's attached to ticket sales, like oh okay, that actually makes like a lot more sense. Um, have ticket you ever sales? used Rotten? Yeah, I'll go ahead. Yeah, sorry. I was going to say ticket sales and also like I do think it has a lot of clout maybe amongst the less online of us, but but still people who use the Internet like my mom goes on Rotten Tomatoes every day. You know, like I I imagine she actually not literally every day, but whenever there's film reviews coming out to figure out like, yeah, who is the person? Do are people actually doing that on Rotten Tomatoes? And I realize like they I mean, they must like it's been purchased (laughs) and sold a bunch of times and. Probably does, but I, w- I actually was trying to figure that out, right? Because I know that yeah. me, very plugged in games. So, but I guess my question that, is because my parents yeah. don't go to the movies, like they just don't. Right. But like Danielle, mm-hmm. so like, did your mom just keep up on movies via Rotten Tomatoes, or is she like, oh, I want to see something? What's good? She does both. Like she goes on Rotten Tomatoes, probably not every day, but probably weekly. You know, she knows a movie's coming out. She wants to read all the reviews. I don't know. I. I can ask her after this podcast if she reads the user <laughs> reviews, but I know she reads the critic reviews, all of them, for pretty much everything. She's always up on, like, oh, this is coming out. You know, this is coming out. Have you heard about this? She's always sort of discussing that sort of thing with me, and I know she is, she's got a bookmark. Not that she knows how to use bookmarks. I just set up a new laptop for her. It's like, she's 68. It's fine. Um, <laughs> but she uses it, right? Like it's it's a regular part it. of, yes. like, her cultural diet Absolutely. that helps inform the decisions she makes in what she watches. Absolutely, Yeah. And she watches trailers, like, religiously. She's constantly watching trailers. So I think it is uh, the part of a normal sort of media diet for, like, a person who is relatively, you know, not as plugged in as us, but but somebody who does keep up on movies, who does want to know what the sort of critical, uh, you know, the, the general census on something is, uh, at least from where the critics are concerned. But, yeah, I don't think she's paying that much attention to, like, you know, uh, Last Jedi Women Suck or whatever. I don't think she's reading those, but she is reading that site. For Username sure. taken. It's got to be one, two, three, four. You got to right, add another right. number to it. Keeps, yeah. keeps going, you know. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, it's a really strange thing because it is also – I actually always liked the Rotten Tomatoes approach, which was that it would just – rather than the Metacritic thing, which – at least for a long time, had the semi-opaque like weighting system, and right. then would translate does, different score. Yeah. yeah, I just think it matters less to the discourse sure. than yeah, it yeah, used yeah. to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it would translate uh, different score systems into a one to one hundred rating. I always liked the Rotten Tomatoes approach of one. It made it super easy to just find what like leading critics were like what you know, critics in newspapers and shit were saying, but two, it also didn't try to get anything more fine grained than 
did a critic like this movie or not really? And there's still some reviews where you, you, you see like a fresh rating from like Manola Dargis or something. And you read a review that's like sort of positive, but also really scathing. And it's like, <laughs> how, like coin flip as to whether or not that uh, is actually a fresh rating. But I always liked the approach of it seemed to be the smart way to approach aggregation. But for me, that's what it was doing. It was aggregating like just general critical consensus. And then it would be a way to navigate to actual like reviews from people I like rather than having to go to like eight different websites and, yeah. and, and look it up and, and crack eight different paywalls. Um, <laughs> this was this was in the halcyon days when every newspaper had a film critic. Uh, but then this whole like audience review aggregation is where things start getting really sticky. Uh, like for me, I just, I probably don't care that much what audiences are saying uh, because that's one of those, you know. Because what does it even mean, right? Yeah. Like what is that number saying? Like especially once like the veil is dropped and you realize that you didn't, like it'd be one thing if it's like, hey, the people who purchased tickets through Fandango, they came back on after seeing the film and like the the ticket was redeemed, we we know they saw it, or at least the ticket was used. Like, I, even if that's not useful to me, I can at least see where you arrive at a conclusion from there that like this is in some measure uh, a a reflection of an audience that saw a film. But like the whole notion, especially the fact that they like, it only makes it all the more like irresponsible what they were doing and like the fire they were playing with, and that like. Like the the notion that they were fanning the flames of like this isn't just people saying like mm. I don't like black people in movies like these are like this is an extension of folks that are going out and actively harassing yeah. actors actresses like this isn't j this is not limited to someone saying a one through ten or whatever this is like uh, this helps uh, inflame like actual meaningful bigotry that is being directed at the individuals that are in these films. Um, or TV or, or what have you. And the notion of like playing on that because like, it's fun. Like what's the, cons like what's the, like, it's, it's actively harmful in a way that I don't, I don't think like they've been really held to account on. And, and the fact that they had to change the, to, to this mere notion of like <laughs> the movies out um, only underscores how the, the, the chasing of metrics, the chasing of engagement led to harmful behavior that like knocked certain people off social media because they didn't want to deal with this shit. And Rotten Tomatoes is not the end all be all of the, 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 the one, you know, Thing that, that the one match that set this off, but it sure as hell contributed to it. Yeah, I was gonna say a lot of this reminds me of uh, back in the day, uh, you know, ten years ago or so. There was this book, this Jeff Jarvis. You know, I don't know if either of you ever read his his blog or his book about making things googly, and you know, is this ringing a bell at all? It's it's okay if it doesn't. This is this is sort no, of no. We'll, we'll set it up. For no, us. I'm, tr I'm yeah. trying. Okay, to it, it was a book. Uh, again, probably 2008 or so, maybe 2007, you know, a little more than 10 years ago. And it was very much about embracing user friendliness, you know, user reviews, user this, user that, making the world a more googly place. That was this, the whole thesis of this book was that this sort of feedback is so great. And it kind of comes from this sort of utopian Internet ideal of like people are going to be reasonable and people are going to be helpful. And the more aggregation you can, can get, you know, of course, there'll be a few bad apples. But in general, the more aggregation of the more people writing, the more people sort of participating in this culture, the better things will be. And it just feels the like the old utopian view of the yes, internet from very much so. Wait, since is it found to be just Jeff, just Jeff, Jeff Jarvis. Jarvis he, he was a professor at CUNY for a while at the, the yeah, but see. the like I just linked you. 
the dude, the Jeff Jarvis that was like, we must crowdsource fundraising for the North Carolina GOP office. Yeah, he sure is still going on that, I guess. That's the same one? That's the dude, man. That's him? That's him? That's, I was like, no. why is Jeff his name Jarvis. like, I was like, because <laughs> I was confusing with Jesper Joel, who's good. Right. Uh, and oh, so I was like, Jeff. wait, yeah. So Jeff Jarvis, so that's really interesting. So like yeah. in the dawn of the internet age, he's like, ah, this will be utopian. Power to the people. Very much This so. cannot possibly go wrong. And then in 2016, he's like, damn, we just got to, we just got to help those North Carolina Republicans rebuild their office that was burned down. It's it's a lot. It is a lot. And it just it, reading this story just brought me back to that book. Not that I read the whole thing. I read like four chapters and I was kind of like, I don't know about this stuff, guys, as I was a, you know, lowly grad student learning about uh, culture and art and all these other kinds of things. Uh, it just. Oh, shit. Did that ever fall on his face? Uh, that utopian ideal. It's well, a lot. I, I think, though, part one of the reasons it does. Well, I'm, I'm curious what you guys think of this. Yeah. Here's here's my here's my pitch. So the utopian idea is that all this stuff is going to help us make better decisions. We're going to crowdsource more more information. Uh, we're going to be able to just provide feedback on a whole host of experiences and help people find what they're looking for, but also sort through the dizzying array of choices we face as consumers in a modern society. But the problem is all the ways to do that, all the ways to help us do that, are run by sites who ultimately begin relying more and more on, engage on engagement, right? Like... Rotten Tomatoes, the, the the relationship I always had with it was really simple and transactional. Go to Rotten Tomatoes, look at the score, maybe link out to a couple reviews. Don't open Rotten Tomatoes for a week, right? You know, until the next movie night. I'm trying it's to like, hey, what movie you want to see? I'm, yeah. Is that any good? I'm Let's gonna go check. look. Oh, it's yeah. green. Cool. Well, yeah. all right. Well, maybe we'll go see that on Friday. Yeah. So we're not we're not like opening and closing like rotten. We're not like living on Rotten Tomatoes all it's the not fucking a time. It's, it's it's not a social network, and like right. that's. But it becomes that if you allow it to like enable fucking campaign. Like if you if you are encouraging people to like sort of take a corner on on a movie, like join the discussion, like lead the conversation. What do what do your reviews say? Uh, like is is that maybe part of what is happening here? I don't know if Rotten Tomatoes has gone as far down that rabbit hole as Steam has, but when I look at the way Steam user reviews go and everything Steam has done with curation and user reviews, uh, trying to get more and more community activity for a game ha to happen on the Steam forums, on the Steam mm -hmm. uh, pages, it all feels to me like, yeah, it's also allegedly for helping people get information about a game, but really it's about to sort of keep you in the hall of mirrors that is like modern consumer website design. Yeah. Well, especially because Steam's, uh, the most recent change to the way user reviews worked is the way what would often happen. And this, this happened with, um, uh, devotion, uh, yeah. right? It was that, that's that the new one. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, was that like, um, the short term of a review bomb is like, like that game went from, I think like the highest uh, praise on a uh, steam is overwhelmingly positive. Um, and then it was uh, bombed with something like 15,000 like negative reviews that brought it down to mixed. Now, that is supposed to average out over time to something that is closer to what it actually is. Because the way like Steam's response was like, oh, we'll just give you charts. <laughs> and so you'll notice that like in this period, overwhelmingly positive. In this period, very negative. Something must have happened. And like in the Steam's bullshit utopia, in, in a which is like harkens back to this, what Daniel was, you were just talking about is like, oh, 
with their thinking, their their hypothesis is like, oh, like there was a bad patch, like it caused crashes in the game or saved games disappeared, and then the community left bad reviews for the game, and so that shows you something went wrong. Then it was fixed, and once it's once a new patch is issued, you can leave a new review, and then look, it's like it's positive again. And that's just not how that's just not how that works. Yeah. Like that is just not how people engage. And like there's such overwhelming evidence at this point where that is nakedly not how people use it. So to continue pretending under that facade is 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 not ignorance or even being disingenuous. It's like willful malice. Like I mean, I would I would argue uh, Steam does that and then dresses it up in fancy rhetoric um, or points to an algorithm. Whereas Rotten Tomatoes, like doing things like social media, like see, seeing what happened to Black Panther and Last Jedi, like and 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 actively like putting out you know tweets that are like riffing on this stuff is like you know that people are being hurt by this, you know what the numbers are showing you, you know what people are writing, you just don't care because at the end of the day you get to do a social media engagement meeting at the end of the month and go way up, yep, man, way up, like that's cool, just keep doing what you're doing because actually a divided audience. Uh, mm-hmm. is 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 good for them. Like, they actually don't want consensus. Like, consensus helping people does not necessarily track with increased traffic, increased engagement. Um, and when you're increasingly driven by in, in engagement as your, like, primary metric, um, if that undergirds how you're profiting off of the endeavor, um, you know, that leads you to do extremely bad things that have extremely bad outcomes. <sighs> That's so depressing and so correct. <laughs> do uh, I guess I like to, to extract it out from from this? Um, is there any like data either of you you? I mean, Rotten Tomatoes is one example, but there's sort of like data points or aggregation or anything that's like in that world that either of you kind of use when you're trying to sort through just stuff. You know what I mean? Like for like one example is like it's not an aggregation necessarily, but like. Everything in my house, I go to the wire cutter. <laughs> okay, like, well the wire cutter. Hmm. In some ways, it's an ag- in some ways like the picture of the wire cutter is if for people who aren't familiar is like oh we're gonna test everything out and then we're just gonna tell you on a general range of like the best uh pretty good and you're cheap um like you could still get this one and it won't like burn down your house and it'll be fine and it's just like rather than having to sort through reviews of like a thousand different <clears throat> uh printers like this is how I bought my most recent printer Rob I don't know if you ended up buying it after an oh, recommendation. I did. It's good. It's a good printer. It's awesome. I love it. Thank you. Right, Patrick. and I got, and thank yeah, you. Wire well, cutter. thank the wire cutter. <laughs> wire cutter sponsor us. Um, but I mean, that's just like that's what's like I I you know I find like the wire cutter extremely useful because there's so many things that I don't want to do like Amazon reviews. I know I'm manipulated. Like anything that's on like any of these commerce websites is not fucking useful to me. And so the wire cutter has always been like a very useful metric for things that like I want something that's good. I do not want to put the effort into trying to figure out where I would even go to learn about the best, uh, you know, like robot cleaner. I just want, just tell me the the one that's like 150 and that like works and it'll last for like 28 years, for like a, a couple of years. I have a three-part system for all of these things in my life, which involves one, right. internet research, which does include things like Amazon reviews or reviews on the wire cutter. I do, I do just like a spread of all the things on the internet. Then I go to Twitter and I ask my Twitter followers about the same thing. And then for certain things, I will go to real life friends and be like, here is the research I have found from my two different types of internet searches. What things track with you, dear real life friend? 
And from there, sometimes they make decisions. (laughs) I think for me, it's... I think I have mixed feelings about the wire cutter mostly because I'm a little bit creeped out by the degree to which I'm beginning to rely on it for things that I used to not <laughs> need reviews for. Yeah. Or, or I didn't think I needed reviews for them. Like, but they have so much, Rob. And so it's like, even yes, like, this little, is the problem. So even like little things you're like, you would, where you normally would have to do on your own. It's like punch in a wire cut. It's like, nah, shit. Like they will tell me which like snowblower I should get and it's like wow that's the most suburban fucking like Patrick Patrick's out here like looking for snowblowers Uh, I'm like uh yeah what which sheets should I get for my bed yeah which like what is going to be the like isn't the podcast ad sheets well right not that I'm opposed to podcast ad sheets I would love to be sent a complimentary set of (laughs) sheets from are you are you expressing Rob, are you expressing the joy that you and I have both had where you do a podcast read and then they're just like, here's some money to just go buy stuff. There's some (laughs) stuff that I can fucking get behind. Like, Patrick, you and I need to record a new ad. I want to sell out. I will sell the fuck out I feel differently than I did when I recorded that first first ad. (laughs) You guys can be wearing your cool things, sitting on cool sheets, eating your football meat together, watching a football game. (laughs) The sports meat. Footballmeat.com. Sponsor us. (laughs) Uh... No, so but like so this is the thing is like time was I would be like, look, I just need to find like 400 thread count sheets uh, that feel, makes me feel fancy. It makes me feel like I'm going to a nice hotel. Uh, so I just need that. Like what have what has good reviews? And now I'm like, oh, damn, I don't want to get the wrong sheets. I better go to Wirecutter. But Wirecutter isn't crowdsourced, right? Wirecutter is like expert right. opinion. Right. Like it is here. And, and they also show their work. Um, Amazon, meanwhile, wants you to buy a counterfeit item of the thing you actually want. Like that's <laughs> that's Amazon's whole like that's I, their they, incentive. Is that's like, their what if you had to buy the same thing twice? One of which is fake and might be dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> it won't light on fire immediately. Just in like six months, you might want to have to buy another one. Amazon, I, uh, I the way the, the way I use the data available on Amazon is uh, quantity of review. Right, not mm. as like an end all mm-hmm. be all, but just like, right, like I'm looking to, I don't know, I'll buy some new pens, and it's like I've never really thought about buying pens. So like I look them up, and it's like okay, within a price range, I'm willing to spend generally like something that has 20 reviews versus like 4,500 reviews. Like oh, that's at least like a metric I can think about that. Um, pro- probably 4,500 reviews that are all five stars haven't been falsified. It's not like, all just fake. The sheer qu- yeah. I just say the sheer quantity at least yeah. like gives you a, like a building block to think about for small stuff that I don't want to like go read a uh, 12 because like I haven't gotten to the point where I'm looking up wire header reviews of pens. Although now I'm wondering, do they have do they have reviews of no, like pens? Patrick, I got you covered on pens. Don't worry about okay. it. Okay. That, right. that one, like, believe me, you're stepping into like <laughs> I'm going to the point, wire cutter I'm and then I'm going cutter. to rob. In-house counsel for that one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, that that is my procedure. Danielle, I'm like, I got to do my research. Increasingly now that research does happen at Wirecutter uh, for like fancier electronics. It happens at Wirecutter and CNET. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But Wirecutter is a little more accessible in terms of like who they're writing for. I think CNET tends to like they show their work a lot and it can be a little bit overwhelming. Yeah. Um, but I will, yeah, do the, then go to the, go to the, the council and, yep. and ask people, uh, you know, what, what they think of a thing. And then I look at my bank account and adjust my expectations. Yep. Um, <laughs> and cry in a corner in my not fancy sheets. Yes. Right. I'm <laughs> sitting, I'm step. sitting here. I'm like, I'd like a blanket. 
I want a blanket. I can't afford the blanket I want. I'm like sitting here saving up for a blanket. I'm like, mm, got it. Rob, like, what's that jar of pennies behind you? Is, I like need the, the blanket. blanket. <laughs> it's the blanket fund. Oh. I'm sitting Where I'm the sitting Christmas here. tree used to be oh. is now just a bucket of pennies. Damn, oh. you can see the fucking penny bucket, huh? Got good eyes. Uh, so, no, I mean, the. I, I'm like, I'm saving up to get a nice blanket that isn't a comforter. Uh, so that I can like you know adjust for whatever the heat level is, mm. uh, oh, yeah. not in the like GTA sense, not like I'm going to bed <laughs> and like I've committed crimes. I'm like gotta go to like more of the like it's what a is different the temperature, blanket <laughs> right? It's like I need a camo blanket. Uh, but I think the to to redirect you like a slightly larger theme here. I think with in terms of accountability, a lot of places with like i think the trend in like politics and 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 like major and big business has tended to be uh kind of a certain shamelessness a refusal to even like grant the premise that you can be held to account uh that you mm-hmm. that you can be shamed i think in the tech space though it is a studied and self-serving cluelessness about the entire thing it is a pretense that oh we just have no idea what the fuck is going on in our platform and like with a guy like jack his stupidity is almost helpful uh, for like Twitter because you can almost believe that he's like naive enough and clueless enough that he might not really get what's going on. Cause a lot of things seem to like sort of go past him and you're sort of left wondering, is that, is that an affectation or is that, is that the, the real article? But if you look at the overall trend, it can't just be a series of accidents. Like Silicon Valley people are ridiculous, but in general there's the, the thing you find again and again is a reaction of, oh, we're as surprised as anyone that our data is being abused. We're as surprised as anyone that Stormfront are running campaigns on our fucking movie review website. Ugh. Wild, huh? Yeah. Golly gee, technology's crazy. No, uh, and- I mean, I think it was funny. I was reading, I can't remember where I heard it or read it, but there was a, you know, Jack Dorsey's been doing a, like rounds of interviews the last like month or so. You should. We never got around to doing it as a waypoint. Please just go read the Ashley Feinberg interview with Jack Dorsey on Huffing the Post, or I guess Huff Post as it's called now. It's mm, it's beautiful. Um, but there was one of one of them circling circulating around where uh, he was like, because Jack Dorsey also runs or is part of Square, which is like a very successful like uh, uh, tech company that like first started as like an easy way for um, uh, realtors, especially small realtors, to uh, uh, retail outlets to like sort of like you know. Uh, use phones for money and charge credit cards and, um, and things like that. Um, and so you would see those square readers going around that could either be plugged into iPads or have their, their own mm-hmm. thing. Anyway, like that company is sort of like slowly dotting along and apparently like doing very well for itself. It's very well run. Um, aren't a lot of huge problems. Um, and then Twitter is just, just fucking just to firestorm, just a constant, um, uh, problem. And someone asked like the difference in approach for those, you know, to kind of explain some of that. And he, uh, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but said something along the lines of like, well, that's people's money. We have to take it very seriously. And so we're very methodical about the steps we take there. And then there's Twitter. And so I feel what's revealing about that is not that he's stupid. It's that they're, they're callous and, uh, uh, and they don't care. Like there's a willful callousness with, with how they treat how people are using like their very powerful amplifying social network. And so 
whereas we're like, oh, it's people's money. Like, oh, well, well we can't fuck that up. We got to make sure there's no Nazis doing bank stuff on Square. But don't worry, they can spread their ideology on Twitter just fine. Like, what if you took the same level of seriousness, you know, across those two? Uh, clearly, right now, you're not. And it's profitable if you don't. So, you know, yeah. absent a Congress that's going to hold you accountable for your fuck ups, you know, all we can do is just keep yelling shame and hoping that Ashley Feinberg gets to do more interviews. <laughs> well, we will leave it there and we're going to take a quick break. Uh, Kato, you got me on that one, right? Uh, we'll take we'll take a quick we'll take a quick break. Uh, in the meantime, shout outs to Mark uh, and enjoy this ad. <laughs> When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. And we're back. Uh, so my waypoint this week is a podcast that I've been, I've come to late. Uh, it's pretty far along in its life cycle, uh, but I'm currently in the middle of one of its better series. And this is Mike Duncan's Revolutions uh, podcast. And specifically, I've been into the third series on the French Revolution that he's done. Now, if you don't know Mike Duncan, uh, you probably know his previous podcast, The History of Rome, mm. uh, which was one of those like wildly popular history podcasts. I never got into it because, um, well, I have a degree in it, uh, so it's just <laughs> not my like, like. I was like, man, I lived that life. I don't know. I don't know if I need it to be my podcast uh, yeah. for now, but. Uh, so Duncan moved on from that to a series of podcasts exploring historical revolutions in the uh, modern world. And it started with the English Civil War, which was a really fun opener. I will say, like, highly recommend that, if only because uh, the English King Charles is one of the most unbelievably clueless dudes uh, that you could like, it is, it is again, I like, I would not expect a podcast about uh, bloody revolutions to be so awkward and cringe at times, but the English <laughs> civil war uh, definitely fits that bill. But I thought the French revolution series uh, that, that he did for his third series was genuinely fascinating in part because it is a topic. I don't know a great deal about uh, my history my my knowledge of French history at this point sort of begins with the siege of uh, Toulon and sort of ends as the Imperial Guard fall back at Waterloo. That's that's my understanding of the period. Uh, but this sort of gets into the antecedents of the French Revolution and really begins unpacking both how complicated it is. And it is enormously complicated. <laughs> I definitely feel like I might. Danielle, you mentioned you were like re-listening to it. Yep. Uh, which yeah, I probably I, should yeah, be. Yeah, yeah, Danielle yep. and I are probably on the same page. I listened to episodes. <laughs> it was like, if you asked me to write down what I've just learned, I'd be like, that's a great question. I, so I, I was. 
I made it through uh, seven episodes, and I'm really excited. Dang. Really enjoying it. I listened to the second episode three and a half times. Uh, not the whole thing, but the the first 15 minutes that are really setting up what the tax structure was like uh, in the in the preceding period uh, to the revolution itself. Just did not completely grasp that the first 3.5 times. It's ungraspable. It That's the other interesting thing, Maybe. right? That's kind yeah. of the point is like it's yeah. meant to be like, what is this? Which I think he does a good job. Was there anything in that description of like the tax trucks that really jumped out at you? Is like this seems fucked. Well, really, the whole thing. Uh, but really, just how much it was completely uh, haphazard in 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 one way. None of the none of these structures, none of the ways in which it was basically a bunch of tiny little fiefdoms that all sort of kind of were collected in a certain way. None of them were organized under the same principles, which is the main issue here. You you might have different rights and privileges in one of these areas than in another one of those areas, and depending on how well off you were. The easier it was for you to have access to resources, that certainly is a is a through line through all of this and through all of history and also in America right now, of course, which is always the fun thing to learn about history as somebody who never really had a ton of, of history education beyond sort of high school. Um, but yeah, really the main thing being none of it seemed like it came from any real structure or any real identifying factors of what would be even remotely uh, that would make sense in a modern structure. It was just a mess that was sort of inherited from medieval times. Like the tiny little areas all had their own kind of thing going on. And that was all sort of vaguely united, but not very well. It's this really interesting construct where he lays out how Louis XIV kind of formally brings France out of the Middle Ages in a lot of respects, but without resolving any of like the administrative cruft of that era, like <laughs> he centralizes a country, basically like he centralizes power within himself, but in terms of administration, how the country actually runs, it's still this kind of ramshackle, like, well, okay. So in this province, uh, you can tax priests this way, but in this province, actually it's a completely different structure and it doesn't really run. And how do you make political change or political will felt through the system and the answer is kind of that, that you can't yeah. in, in, in a lot of ways I think the other thing that I do like about this series is that there is a tendency and this is this is probably the main thing I'm into about this this series there is a tendency for all things to look inevitable in hindsight sure that we look at a subject and we know that like with the French Revolution we know that like the storming of Bastille is coming and so everything gets shot through this lens of, well, okay, so from this series of problems, inevitably we are going to trend toward the fall of the Bastille and the execution of the royal family and the reign of terror. And what's interesting about this series is that because he breaks it down very much like a storyteller, uh, he makes it clear, like, none of this is inevitable. Like, everything is so contingent and it can actually hinge on these really weird chances, decisions, misunderstandings. And you can imagine how, yes, there are historical, there's historical momentum at work, but you can also imagine like, man, if something had just, if someone had just been a little bit different, if yeah. people had had their shit just a little bit together, or if somebody just hadn't rubbed someone else the wrong way, things would have gone differently. And God knows how history looks. That is my favorite thing about this. Again, thus far, not having heard the whole thing, but 
I don't know how far in seven episodes is. I actually really have no clue. I haven't looked it's at the weird. full list think, or anything. I think his French Revolution series is like 40 episodes. Holy which shit. Which is wild because okay. I think his uh, American Revolution series was like 18, okay. 20. Uh, right. So like this one, this one is the deep end of the pool for sure. So not even a quarter of the way in, but thus far really enjoying it. That is the thing I've been taking away the most is he, he puts these really, first of all, he's painting very colorful pictures, which always helps me again, as somebody who does not have the greatest history education, there are so many gaps in my mind of, of pretty much every major period in every major country of history. I, I have like little bits and pieces that I, I read a cool book at one point or my dad interested me in something at some point, that kind of thing. Um, this paints a really great picture and it does have that like, hey, if if uh, Louis Sixteenth had been a more compelling speaker, X, Y, and Z, here were three opportunities he could have had to change enough minds at this council. Things like that, those like really specific, like here's a turning point, here's a turning point, here's a turning point that he's really highlighting. Uh, I find that very helpful as a listener like myself without that great background on this. So it's, it's awesome so far. I found... Uh, mm. I like Danielle. Do not have a like uh, like much of a history background beyond. We're going with this, Patrick. Like, I'm going. I found this is not this is not a podcast for beginners. Is like <laughs> to speak to the form. Sure. Right. Like so. Like having listened to the first two episodes, getting to the end and being like, this person clearly knows what they're talking about. But like, I felt like at least the way I listen to podcasts is often doing other things. Mm-hmm. Right. It's I'm cleaning. I'm 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 putting stuff away in the house. It it is something that is uh, an additive to other stuff I'm doing. You know, the result of that is probably why a lot of my podcasts are conversational in nature. So I think I've become trained to listen to a lot of pod, like the most effective way of information being communicated to me in a podcast is actually in some sort of like conversational manner. Um, and that can still be like reported, right? Like things like slow burn, I think are exceptional are still mm-hmm. like kind of closer to that format. Whereas this one is a little more just like information being read to you. It's pretty uh, flavorless. That doesn't mean that it's not, good like i'm trying to describe like a very distinctive way yeah. of doing storytelling um but i felt like i needed to sit down and like i need to listen to this and take notes and because it's not that type of podcast like what i wanted more was like let's like slow down and like give a little little more broader context of what's happening and so if it feels like the kind of thing that i would go and read as a supplemental to something else where like that or like I went and read the a big the Wikipedia page of the French Revolution. And I was like, all right, I feel like I'm now better prepared to actually listen to this podcast <laughs> than I was when I listened to it uh, in in the the first place. Um, so I'm curious. I, I don't know how this like the only other like I have a friend that's like really into hardcore history is like one of the yeah. other like really big history podcasts. So, like I haven't listened to that one, but, but I don't know how this like this like where this one fits in like sort of the pantheon of how different history podcasts choose to present themselves. I like uh, the approach here better than Dan. It's Dan Carlin, right? Dan Carlin, yeah. I, which I have listened to several. So I haven't listened to that one. So what's what's yeah. that approach? It is just I. I think I just don't love his politics that much. Like, mm-hmm. dude is like enamored with Teddy Roosevelt and and stuff like that. So See, I, I'm not sure I like Mike Duncan's either. Like, I like okay. I like this podcast and yeah. fundamentally I think he's okay, but. The politics I want to get to you in a second, but yeah, so that's interesting. Please, yeah. Um, I, I'm finding this easier to take uh, because he does have, like you said, I, I know you had mentioned this in the notes, he does certainly show his own political leanings, but less so than Dan Carlin. I feel like Dan Carlin is really this like kind of moderate dude who who is madly in love with the great men of history. Uh, he has a really 
sensational way of speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dan Carlin does. Uh, sorry to make it specific here. Uh, really sensational. Like, oh my God, he's doing the, you know, he's he's really like fashions himself as an orator, you know, standing at his pulpit, teaching you some shit for five hours at a time uh, about history stuff, which is stirring and something I've enjoyed while like playing games or, or things like that. Uh, but his politics have gotten in the way for me. Whereas Mike Duncan, this guy? Yeah. Okay. His have not yet gotten in the way for me uh, necessarily, and that might be a quirk of this specific season. It might be a quirk of me not knowing his politics as much as Dan Carlin throughout hearing so many of his other podcasts. But please do 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 tell about some of your issues with it. No, it, but it's a hard thing to put your finger on, sure, right? Yeah. Like, so I think with Dan Carlin, there's there's an approach. What is most engaging and compelling about history a lot of times is the amazing stories you get to tell. And that's how a lot of people are drawn into it. Then as you get more serious about your study of history, you learn that those stories you're told are often really simplified, streamlined. They leave a lot of things out increasingly like have an agenda or an angle. Um, And then the further you get into history, the less romantic you get about it at all. And you start approaching this knowledge that like, Everything is a complicated morass, like teasing out like what happens, even in really well-documented situations with like clear outcomes, is still really difficult to do uh, from the benefit of hindsight. When you're talking about a thing like the French Revolution, uh, you're talking about um, things that aren't recorded very well. Uh, gender dynamics among the French peasantry in the 18th century. Like we know some about that, but do we actually like know what it was like? Do we know what like the discourse around that was that's harder to tell. Um, I think there's a couple things with Mike Duncan. One is that in the end, his first duty I think is to the story. Mm-hmm. And if you're focusing on the story, uh, you're necessarily going to increasingly be telling a version of history that centers on great men. Uh, sure. Now I think Duncan to his credit also does try particularly well, the French Revolution, women also start playing a more and more important role in it. But he does try to speak to larger sociological uh, trends and, and economic trends of the moment and not just make it about, and then this dude did this. <laughs> yeah. But when the chips are down, he will gravitate toward the colorful anecdote and sort of the knowing, like, wry, sardonic comment about, uh, isn't this guy a schmuck? Yeah. Um, I, I the, the analogy I use a lot is um, Shelby Foote in the Ken Burns Civil War uh, documentary series is a great speaker, but he beca- he becomes increasingly grating because he just loves the stories of the Civil War and the colorful characters it is, and doesn't seem to engage as much with like the content of the issues. Uh, the other thing is I think Duncan in the, maybe in the process of doing the series. You can almost detect his growing skepticism of radical revolutionary action. Hmm. Um, like, definitely, he has a very positive feeling about the American Revolution and the people who led it. And I think that kind of is revealing about his politics. He's critical, but like, not as critical as maybe a lot of these guys deserve. Sure. Uh, and then as the French Revolution continues, you can sort of see like there's almost an element where it just feels in the story he tells, he almost has more sympathy for the moderates and conservatives who are like trying to put the brakes on things. And he's a little more skeptical 
of the people who want to burn it all down. Even though the story he lays out, you're kind of sitting there being like, I could see why you'd want to see that fucker burn. Yeah. I almost wonder, and this is completely, having only listened to seven episodes of this series and nothing else of his, I almost wonder, because this season is from 2014, almost wonder if he would have more sympathy in 2019 after seeing maybe some of the things that have happened in life or maybe uh, understood some of the sentiment towards at least some some light revolutionary uh, sentiment in, in the American left at this point. But again, this is me completely being like, I'm listening to this in 2019 and it's post, you know, Trumpian politics yeah. and all that kind of stuff. I don't know him at all, so I can't speak to that. But I do wonder uh, on some level about that. Well, I think one of the things the, so I did hear him speak about when he was covering, I think, the Russian Revolution mm-hmm. um, or possibly the revolutions of 1848. I can't remember which, but he, he, he appeared on Chapo to talk a little bit oh. uh, about his attitude to revolutions. And he still sounded a little like he sounded like the politics that you hear in 2014 are still sure. basically his politics. Um in his defense, though, I think one of the threads running through revolutions is that none of this unfolds according to design. Right. And a lot of these revolutions that he covers and a lot of these stories he ends up telling end up unleashing a whole lot of, like, pain and disaster, including on people who have the best of intentions, don't always, tra- like, frequently fail to translate into, like, meaningful positive change for the majority of people in a society that uh, utopian action, the radical action uh, tends to sort of consume itself or tends to be redirected into uh, some bad ends or tends to produce reactionary backlash Mm. uh, that takes you to a worse place than you started from. Uh, So I, I, I think if revolution sort of has a bias, it's that, it is skeptical of the forces that are being unleashed in these stories it tells, and it thinks they should be treated with, with a great deal of respect and wariness. Um, hey, Rob, I wonder, uh, yeah. is having listened to two episodes in which do you, there's a, he's a storyteller, but you don't feel like there's a lot of him in the story he's telling. He's yeah. like, oh, I went and did the research. Here's the story I'm telling you about what happened. Is like some of your suspicion because there's a lack of more of the author in the work itself? And where, like, if you knew a little bit more of where he landed on things, not where he's got to, like, hey, side note, here's what I think about, like, <laughs> the decision that was made here or why these people did or didn't do this thing. But, like, the pure, like, it's 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 very bland in its approach, like, for, for on purpose. But it, by lacking that, you have to do more of your own research or suspicions yeah. to try and eke out, like, well, what are you, like, well, what are you actually saying here based on what you're prioritizing? Because every, every retelling of history... Uh, is is in itself political because yeah. you are picking and choosing the subjective, you know, nature of how you're presenting the information. So, you know, by lacking a lot of that in his approach to storytelling, does it inevitably like lead you to to have to start wondering, well, why did you choose this? How did you land at this? Because he's not outright telling it to you as part of the storytelling. I think there's a bit of that uh, in that you you end up kind of trying to fill in blanks based on how he's telling the story and what he's presenting, but. Uh, I don't know. So, Danielle, you probably got to this part. There is a sequence where Louis XVI has a chance to almost, like, put a cork in this. Yes. Uh, it's Because what triggers all of this is 
a series of things. One, France has a series of like bad harvests, uh, which sort of like fuck up their agrarian economy. Uh, but the big thing is the country is wildly bankrupt and they've been fudging the numbers for years to, to cover this. And I'm curious, like there's a deal cut that is almost going to resolve this. Danielle, I'm curious, do you feel in that, in the way he tells that story, like there's something he almost wishes happened? Yes. Oh, absolutely. That, that it's Louis the 16th, I believe at this point in history, uh, that he was a better speaker, that he was better able to convince people, that he was better suited to being a king, really, and sort of leading people towards a particular path, because it sounded like, I might not get the person's name right, so I'm just going to say, a person came up with a set of proposals that were going to basically restructure the tax structure, get more money flowing, do a lot of the things that needed to be done, kind of bring a lot of people on board from different provinces and uh, kind of make them work together to some degree. And they were beginning to agree on some of this stuff. And I don't remember the exact uh, failing, but the person who created this proposal apparently was not super compelling. He ended up uh, bad-mouthing the nobles in, like, a a, a, a newspaper, like, not newspaper, whatever at the time would have been basically an op-ed, threw, threw it well, out there. they're all broadsheets, yeah. Right, like, <laughs> I, I am definitely paraphrasing with my own modern understanding of how word is spread. Uh, but he basically shot himself in the foot by doing that. And the king himself could have pushed through some of this legislation. He could have been more compelling. He could have actually been, you know, the guy to get it done. But he was really uninterested in a lot of the the sort of craft of policymaking and, uh, you know, what, what kings do at this point in life and actually sort of getting in there and getting his hands dirty with this sort of policy. And that was one of the, mo- the major failings that it sort of caused everything to collapse was – this turning point could have really, really, really been, hey, we're fixing some shit and it's going to take a while, but we're fixing some shit versus, oh, it's all going up in flames because we couldn't get that right person to actually be a leader, get there, get the boots on the ground to get this policy kind of going. That was my understanding of it. It's an oversimplification, but that was kind of my understanding uh, that uh, Mike Duncan here is like, God damn it. Now everybody didn't have to die. You know, we could have done this with policy, which is like a... a beautiful thing to think. Kind of the centrist, like, damn it. Like, kind of centrist, like, If though, only yeah. the process could have been allowed to work. Yeah. Uh, and so that's the thing is, like, I think to a degree, he is a little dull and a little, like, dry, Patrick. But at the same mm-hmm. time, he also seems like somebody who imagines how the system could have worked and been reinvented and people could have reinvested and re-legitimized a decaying political order. And that in itself, I think, is like if that's what you're choosing to focus on. Um, and particularly, like, there's this one cringe moment where uh, basically a deal has been cut, and all Louis has to do is show up to this meeting and like put his name to it. And Louis falls asleep in the middle of the meeting. <laughs> and uh, like, basi- like, it is such an incredibly like disrespectful seeming move. Really? Uh, and it kind of like, scuppers a lot of the legitimacy and enthusiasm uh, for the deal in the first place. And then he starts like ad-libbing what he was going to say in his formal remarks uh, over this deal. And there's this feeling you get in the way he tells the story that like, damn it. Like if only he'd been a better King, uh, we could have, and the answer is could have what, right? Like what would that deal have accomplished? It could have kicked the can further down the road. Could have, uh, and, I, and so I think that ends up being the one frustrating thing with Duncan's politics is that, um, and I get it, it's the people who end up getting like totally wrecked in history a lot of times end up being kind of underdogs that you sort of like 
almost pull for it. Like, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't have to go this way. You don't need to be this doomed. Uh, but I also think there's something political about the way he tells the story of, by focusing on like the inflection points that cause the status quo to be lost, mm. uh, which is an interesting angle for a revolutions podcast. But nevertheless, I think it's interesting. It, it like it, it does dig into stuff that maybe you haven't like learned too much about if your product, like me and Danielle of a, <laughs> uh, you know, American, uh, high school education, uh, covering world history in the space of two semesters when you're, Yep. Uh, you know, 15, 16. Uh, but it's it's still a podcast well worth listening to. This is definitely one of the denser. Um, nice. And there is, it's such a complicated revolution, but it makes, it makes for a fascinating uh, subject. I will say uh, I listened to about half of the interview he did with uh, Chapo, and like I found that to be like like more informative as a gateway in because it again like my own biases and preferences like it was that conversational tone where it's like there was just a little more explaining that was yeah. happening as they were talking through things so uh it almost might even be worth for people who are curious and maybe you are sympathetic to like you know my own reaction to it like maybe listen to that interview first it kind of like gives you some groundwork uh to to work with before you jump into the podcast itself um Who's ready for some football? Man, I w- it's February. It's still snowing. It's not. The I AF am, is on. I am ready for some football. All right. I don't have any draft well, picks, look, but I'm there's ready. There's no football right now. But what there is mm-hmm. is the NFL scouting combine. Yeah. So, Danielle. <laughs> yes. You don't I give did. a shit about football. I. But this caught your eye. I and have that's, complex that's what feelings. intrigues me. I have yeah. complex feelings about football, uh, which is, you know, to to make it real quick, I think the game is fascinating and awesome and really cool. I hate the NFL because they're a bunch of assholes. And uh, the, the way that football is played, the way most professional sports are done in this country is pretty fucked up and bad. But this combine was fascinating to me because it connected, uh, I think, a few things that I find fascinating in sports, especially uh, the way it's sort of connected to the way we look at athletes in Uh, combat sports as well but just generally this is a short piece on SB Nation uh, about uh, the combine itself it's it's titled I went through the NFL combine these were the most awkward parts and it's from a retired lineman uh, Jeff Swartz uh, who talks about what it was like to go through this combine where people who are very 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 elite level uh, college football players or I suppose you guys tell me because again I do not follow the NFL super super closely but is it possible to not be a college athlete? I, I suppose like a really high level high school football player could go through this potentially. No, they have walk-ons. I don't know if this is okay. a, this necessarily is that okay. period. I don't know the exact mechanisms. Like it, it is possible. I think there is. I think some I people are to invited that. to the combine sure. if they yes. like. But in general, this is the place where people about to graduate potentially into the NFL. That is the predominance of who you'll find there, yeah. and then. Also, do uh, Patrick? I forget. Do like do veteran players sometimes show show up at this thing if they're like they're, if they're trying to demonstrate that like they're healthy again? Uh, that they're I don't think so. I think that might be something separate. Like this yeah. is largely about like quarterbacks coming in, throwing balls, the measurement stuff that we'll get into with yeah. the, the article that Danielle linked, and like it's it's like it's uh, a lot of what happens at the combine is people's like dra- uh, draft uh, sort of like stock rising or falling. Um, so it's like maybe you'll have a player come in 
that people were like, oh, yeah, that seems pretty good. Might go in like the third or fourth round. And then he runs like, was it the three, four? Isn't that what they call it? Mm. Where uh, uh, the sprint that they do. And it's like, oh, he's like super fucking fast and has a great combine. But suddenly he might be like a second or first round pick or someone comes in and they're overweight. And it's like, oh, you know, maybe, you know, this person's lazy and they weren't prepared for the combine. So they're going to slip down. So there's a lot of that sort of like draft jockeying that happens. And the draft is in April. So it's like a month and a half out or something like that. Yeah. All right, cool. So, yeah, basically this is like an apparatus for determining the fitness of these athletes, both their minds and their bodies. And their minds, to some extent, I suppose, uh, in, in some really weird and borderline content warning, uh, borderline abusive sounding practices, frankly, uh, to, to see if, like, uh, this athlete can uh, be made to cry, basically, at, during certain portions of the interview. But they they come on and they actually go ahead and uh, this started in the 80s, it sounds like, and it continues to go through it just it's it's like a huge testing of these athletes uh to the point where there's one passage that really really struck me uh that was basically they are sort of lined up and it looked it sounded like a u-shaped formation of like desks where doctors go around and make measurements uh so yeah here it is i'll just read this this tiny part there, there's a portion for measurements and then after measurements, it's time for medical checks. This is a long, all-caps process. The team split up into six different rooms, and each player must take a turn in each room. The rooms are set up in the same way. The tables are arranged in a U-formation for all the team doctors and trainers. The players sit on the table in the middle of the room. This just sounded like almost like a uh, in a horror movie, you know, set in the 1800s, where you know they're, you're in the medical theater or something, and they're demonstrating. You know, there's a body on the table, and the sort of mad scientist or the mad scientist professor is is like poking and prodding at this body and being like, "Here, students, look at his biceps. They are X big." It's this really wild image uh, in my head of this kind of going on. Uh, and everything is measured. Their their muscles, their their sort of uh, you know their wingspan, their the length of their legs, the length of their head. Like all these incredibly detailed measurements are made, ostensibly uh, to to you know sort of determine their fitness or their relative fitness to play alongside other athletes uh, that have been measured to this degree. There's something about this that is really fascinating. I guess I should also mention these interviews. They're done, uh, it sounds like they have sort of normal interviews that are actually sort of getting to know this person as a player, as a as a person, how well they would get along with other people. And also, there's an allusion here to someone's job as a coach was to interview people and see if they could make this person cry under like any... Yeah, do you want me to... I'm gonna... Love to get Voight <laughs> comfed uh, yeah. for my football job. <laughs> right? well, let me read you. There's a... Please um, do. Yeah. Uh, an article from uh, USA Today, uh, one of their sports sections, where they um, collected this is from February 2017 by awesome. uh, Stephen Ruse, I believe is how you pronounce his name. Um, uh, here are some of the questions that people were asked at these interviews. Uh, do you find your mother attractive? Do you like men? When did you lose your virginity? Is your mother a prostitute? What's your murder weapon of choice? Would you would you rather be a cat or a dog? Where are you sitting on a bus? Speeding on a mountain. Where does the sun rise and where does it set? Also, side note, Rob, wasn't that the thing that Jared Goff couldn't, he didn't know where the sun came, oh, like, no. ro- rose and set? <laughs> wasn't that in Hard Knocks a couple of years back? Yeah, I like, can't remember. True. feel like that's true. Um, would you share your internet history with us? What color is chocolate? Boxers or briefs? How many ways could you use a brick in a minute? What team do you pick in Madden? What kind of fish are you? Are you afraid of clowns um read these lines from pale fire 
Right. Uh, <laughs> Your baseline's way off, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just uh, wild. I and then so the thing is, like, if there were a league that embodies white supremacy, it's the NFL. Mm-hmm. And there's largely white people just inspecting yes. and deconstructing black bodies. Yes. Yes. And the combine is kind of the most over, like, just symbolically, like, it is, like, put these athletes up on the stand, go over them, like, you know, check their check their joints, check their teeth. And, like, I was also surprised, like, de- details that just creep me out, like, uh, him talking about having strained his knee, like, two years earlier, and the doctor touches his knee. And it's like, mm, that MCL feels loose. Yeah. Like, yeah. whoa. It's banana. And, the, and there's a, a person, somebody had 13 MRIs. Like, <laughs> in, in this one day, 13 MRIs. Like, it, it's the amount. There's also a portion of this that is, that is bananas to me as somebody who, who follows a little bit. And my sister works in the world of... Um, uh, like medical aid in in uh, in uh, countries in conflict areas and and things like this. Like how many MRIs they have here? They have. It's almost like okay, <laughs> these resources to microscopically, uh, you know, analyze these athletes. Not literally microscopically, but to a really, really, truly fine point. It's like this technology could go to the people who are, again, I'm oversimplifying, but like people who are literally being bombed in another country and who really need some of this medical equipment. But we have like however many MRI machines right here to make sure that MCL that was loose for one game. It was what his freshman season. He missed no practice and zero games and like had the tiniest little twinge to it. Like that's the degree that we're talking about. And it's like there's something really, really American and capitalist about this entire system of using this much of a resource to ensure that we don't we're not getting any players who have ever had any injury ever and have no chance of these injuries and and all of these things playing this wildly violent game where everyone will be injured eventually. Are there any athletes who play football who have never been injured? Does that even exist? Really? Well, I mean, like the I posted these in our our Discord. I want to read a couple yes, of these. Yes, please do. Um, uh, tweets from. Uh, Todd McShay, who I don't, uh, I don't know if he's like a draft analyst. I'm not familiar with what specifically does. It's not listed in his, his Instagram is TM McShay. I don't know. Someone else figure it out. Anyway, he has, he's, you know, got hundreds of thousands of followers and does stuff about football. But okay. So he had a couple of tweets about as the combine is kicking off. Um, <clears throat> Alabama uh, OT, offensive tackle. Uh, Jonah Williams, 33, 5-8 inch, 5 and 8 inch, 5 Arm length, arms length doesn't prevent him from playing OT in the NFL, but certainly won't help his cause. Ideally, thirty-four and one half inches or longer. Ohio State OC Mike Jordan measures at six, six five and six seven five, seven eight, uh, seven eight, <laughs> and three hundred twelve pounds with thirty-four one fourth arm length. Great size. I think he's an underrated player on tape. Stanford running back Bryce Love five eight and seven eight and two hundred pounds. Alabama running back Josh Jacobs five ten two twenty. Both as expected. I mean, the one the, the offensive tackle is the one in particular where it's like mm, thirty three and five ace. Uh, you know, it ain't no thirty four and a half. It's just like <laughs> like I'm sure like given like there there are probably statistics that like look at this in a spreadsheet that's like ideally this is what you want out of like an idealized 
body. Like, I see how you arrive at that, but it is so fucking weird to see it just, like, put down, taking a person's body and just reducing it to those uh, measurements. It's a lot like... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Rob. I was just going to say that also I'm not entirely sure how predictive those stats actually are of someone's ability to like how many times, like for instance, by any measure, Darren Sproles, who's one of the best running backs to play in the league should not have been an NFL player. People were saying this from the start of his career. He's too small to play in the NFL. He just didn't like Russell Wilson is also a good, Mm -hmm. good example of that. Right. A a very, a very small quarterback um, who should get crushed and not be able to play. Isn't Tom Brady kind of small for a quarterback? I know we hate him. I'm not saying he's great. I'm just saying, isn't he on the smaller side of quarterbacks? I can't remember why. I can't remember what the reservations were. He did get, yeah, he did get drafted very late. Yeah. Um, Yeah. There was something. But I don't know exactly I, yeah. why that why that was. Um, well, but, but there's but, also but, a bias toward like quarterbacks need to be tall, right? Yeah. Oh, you, well, how could you possibly like, <laughs> right? How could you possibly like throw the ball over the line if you're not tall enough? And there are a lot of players who like break that mold, but it happens often enough that I kind of wonder to what degree are stats like this really that predictive of something? Like a lineman's art isn't about their wingspan. It maybe helps, but Actually, it's more about like how well do you anticipate? How well do you move? Uh, side, like I don't know. I suppose like maybe how well does a weight predict? How does how well does weight and reach predict how someone's going to do in the ring, Danielle? Yeah, I, I, exactly. That's kind of what I wanted to sort of connect this with because the sport that I I practice, I have a weight limit. Like when I compete, I have a specific target weight that I need to make. Uh, specifically, you know, myself personally, and also in MMA, the wider world of MMA, there's like very very specific weight limits, and it's only a weight limit. They're they're not talking about. There's no limits, at least for things like wingspan and height and things like that. Even though. MMA athletes are also measured in a lot of these same ways, like in terms of how tall are you? What's your muscle mass? What's your composition? Like they have like a UFC uh, performance institute now in Las Vegas that will do things like your very specific punching power, like how much force you can put into a punch, things like that. Like these very, very, very specific stats. And yet the very, very, very best MMA fighters are often the people who have the most, uh, you know, God, the term is like ring intelligence or or, or cage intelligence or, or whatever, fight IQ. People who do the best are exactly what you're saying, Rob, like the people who are able to really kind of take what they've got and make the most of it, whether or not they are really the most physically impressive athlete who has ever existed. There are people in MMA who are like really physically impressive specimens, right? There, there's a current welterweight champion, Tyrion Woodley. I think he's still the champion. He is like this amazing athlete john jones an amazing amazing athlete uh but a lot of people who are great 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 fighters are not necessarily elite athletes i think we talked about this a tiny bit uh when we were talking about uh gen lock a little bit about how like in a lot of olympics and a lot of other sports that have been around for much longer probably football would would be in this as well uh these athletes they basically have like tiny mutations like they they have these sort of ideal bodies uh that they they were kind of born into and trained into uh but for something like mma and i i don't know where football ends on this exactly whether or not these are people who have these like almost i mean mutation sounds like a little wild but i'm really talking about like 
okay, you, you, you have a specific type of muscle composition. You have a particular gene that has uh, made you more disposed to having more fast twitch muscle fibers or slow twitch muscle fibers or, or things like that. Um, it, it is really wild to me uh, on so many levels how obsessed we are with the numbers when we don't know necessarily what these numbers mean because they don't always translate into performance in all of these ways. So, yeah. Yeah, this is uh, something that I tend to get really skeptical of. It's like something I think a lot about, for instance, is that. And you hear you like you, you hear like, again, like, I refer to him a lot because he's a smart commentator, but Monty Jones on mm -hmm. ESPN talked about like how one of the most important jobs on an NFL team is quarterback. It's crapshoot as far as like. They have not figured out how to evaluate or or draft these guys. Um, so, like, to what degree is this scienceism, but mm -hmm. not science, mm -hmm. right? Like that. That's the that's the thing that like I I read a report like this, and to what degree is all this quantitative data really? producing useful information <laughs> or is it versus them just convincing themselves like we have to try and pick through these we have to sort through these people somehow <laughs> and so we will come up with some sort of data that we think is predictive but we're not really sure but if you're <laughs> there's a list of people like why this one over the other one um like like there's very like it's, it seems like what you're getting at rob is like when you look at like you know uh folks have been like drafting the nfl over the last you know 10 years like there are very like few times where the there is a collective agreement over like this is a transcendent talent that immediately is just going to be amazing, and that is just taken for a fact, and then also becomes fact. Like uh, I think maybe like Andrew Luck is like one of the last times yeah. that's happened in the last ten years. So people are like, this guy's going to come in, he's going to be one of the best quarterbacks in the league immediately, and that just happened. That just was true. Um, now that's probably shown through the body of work um, in college where like that just became like overt. But I think like what's revealed through this is just how rare moments like that are and so you have to like i don't know you gotta you, you end up coming up with things that you hope are predictive but are at, at the end of the day probably just hopelessly giving you justifications for why you're picking one person over the other and like that's probably why it's a quasi uh mixture of like this like a psych tests and like physical attributes um like if it is both like i actually felt one of the more revealing ones uh in the in the piece was where there's a test they have to take um, in which you're like not really expected to, to finish it, but it's mostly to see like how far you can get through these rapid fire questions. And basically in order to finish it, you have to like, you would have to do each question in like 14 seconds or something like that. And um, the author points out that, you know, if you think about it in football terms, generally like when you're calling a play or like diagnosing a play, like you have about 14 seconds for everything to sort of happen. And so what the, the questionnaire is actually doing is not really testing your like necessary, your football IQ. It's more like your ability to diagnose mm -hmm. a problem in real time and then do something about it, which, which that is kind of interesting. I don't know. Again, I don't know if that actually, you know, <laughs> the ability to get bullshit your way right. through a question. Does that actually reveal your ability to like read a defense and where they're putting the safety? I don't know, but I, it reading stuff like this more than anything is probably maybe really tells you how, how soft the foundation actually is for player evaluation. And I wonder how true that is of just football or if that is like just more broadly true in, you know, sports. And I also wonder how much of this, 
maybe some of these these measurements would be more applicable to sports with fewer variables in the playing of the sport. Swimming, for example, where there are the fewest, obviously there are differences. I'm sure there are differences in things like water temperature or using a different bathing suit or whatever. But in general, there are fewer variations in swimming 800 meters in one pool versus another pool or, or that kind of thing versus yeah. a sport where there is a lot of chaos. Even even within a play, there are a lot of variables. The ball could go any which way. Anybody could be maybe a little faster, or a little slower, X, Y, and Z. A million variables are kind of going on. I don't know. I, it, it, it sure feels like a lot of this is incredibly arbitrary. And, and yeah, we're almost laughing at it a little bit, but it is also like there is a very uncomfortable racial element, which I, I know we, we touched on a tiny bit. And obviously not all football players are people of color, but so many of them are. And there is a, there is an aspect of this that makes me uncomfortable even in MMA when, you know, people's bodies are being very much commented on, uh, men and women. They're, they're almost naked when they're fighting in a cage. You know, men are typically wearing like just shorts. Women are typically wearing, you know, just shorts and like a little sports bra. And people, to their credit, most announcers, like, you know, little legit announcers are not saying like, anything gross or sexualized necessarily about the athletes. That That is one good thing about MMA is that the women athletes, uh, for all the shit that they take and have taken over the years, uh, because it's a somewhat newer sport, they do make a little bit more in line with, with pay parity. Like, you know, the, uh, if you're a superstar woman, you, you might make as much as a superstar man. You might make as little as a, a guy who's just sort of a journeyman as well. Um, but you're still commenting very specifically on people's bodies in a really, really, really overt way. You know, the ref might literally make an adjustment on like a woman's sports bra if she's in like a, a weird entanglement, basically. And they're doing that so that she because her arms are literally wrapped up in the other person, they're they're grappling. She can't do anything about it. So this is not like, oh, it, the ref isn't being gross and like touching her in, in an appropriate way. But there is a way in which these people's bodies are being commodified. They are out there. We are looking at them. We are judging them for their bodies. We are judging them for if they made weight or not, things like that, uh, that I think can be really uncomfortable if we look at it on anything past sort of that face value and, and, and look at like, okay, you really are judging another human being's worth based on their size in, in a lot of ways, which is, I think, an inherently fairly uncomfortable thing and a, a wild thing to think about. Uh, yeah, I think there, there is this, this element of a lot of athletics are about commodified bodies and performance, but some sports are somehow more off-putting mm -hmm. about it, I think. And particularly like the more violent ones, I suppose, both because at that point you're getting more into the blood sport aspect of it. The like, yes. It is about athleticism. It is about athletic, athletic ability. It is also about what we are about to inflict on these finely tuned yeah. machines. Um, and that is that makes it especially upsetting when you see then this kind of careful evaluation. Uh, but also it, it does to a degree feel a bit to me like, again, um, you know, the, the illusion of precision. Because, you know, in a lot of the fight game, uh, certainly in football, as you said, Danielle, these are complicated, dynamic, fluid uh, environments that do not lend themselves to clean quantification. It's not like in basketball, you can like have a heat map of how does a player shoot <laughs> from these positions? Like what like what outcomes have we observed from here? And you have a pretty clear idea of who that player is uh, based on that. Baseball is kind of the perfect statistical sport. Uh, and so there's there's a body of work that is very useful to judge to to judge from, 
football. I don't know. I like. I'm sure Patrick. The, anal- really- the analytics revolution of football is like mm. only just starting. So like, like I think it was only in this past season where the NFL like was like all was it like all the jerseys like track what the players are doing, and at the end of the season, all the teams get access to the data so they can see like what players are doing, and so you can see that stuff like spreading to college, and then suddenly we have like different ways of interpreting what is or isn't like a good fit for the NFL that is different than whether your fingers should be or your arms <laughs> yeah. should be like another right. half an inch. Not that that stuff isn't, you know, predictive in some sense. Like if you're not, I mean, you know, well, I, I don't know. On like, some level, if, you, maybe if you're this a defense, a, go ahead. Maybe this applies to the average draftee, right? Like maybe like we know about Darren Sprawls because he turned out to be like a generational talent who doesn't fit this model. And so always it's boy, like when he, when he came to the NFL, it's, will he hold up? Can he play right. in the game? 10 years later, it's shit. That guy, that guy's <laughs> awesome and yeah. still doing it. Do but does this work as an evaluative metric for the NFL drafts hundreds of players? Does this method produce, for the most part, good data? Uh, I have no idea. Uh, I mean, but- you you could almost if you uh, if you want to show how tough it is to get quality drafts. The uh, you know whatever my feelings on the New England <laughs> Patriots and what they represent, they're an incredibly effective organization that are, are very good at scouting players. Um, they're the best at finding uh, players that other teams have tossed into the garbage and they pick them up and go, let's go get a ring. Um, but they also have drafted terribly for like the last like five years. Um, and so it's like, if they can't figure it out, (laughs) then that probably tells you something about like how difficult it is and how little teams actually know about what they can pull off in this process. Um, because if anyone would have figured it out, like Bill Polichek would have figured it out by now. And so it's like if he's still fumbling in the draft, that probably tells you you don't learn very much until they're actually just playing in the NFL. And yeah. then you can figure out what to do with them yeah. from there. All right. So that will do it for our waypoints for this week. I got to go deal with an entire <laughs> smoke detector situation. <laughs> you, uh, uh, do you want to make some more holes in your wall? Um, yeah. This time I'm going to fix it. Yeah. This is. Does that make the yeah. hole bigger? Uh, or add a new one. I think just just go upstairs and rip this thing out of the ceiling. Uh, we'll 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 see what's gonna happen. Uh, but anyway, our thanks to Two Mellow for the track "Slide Asleep" off the album "After Midnight." You can find that at twomellowmakes.bandcamp.com. I keep turning this microphone away from that part of my apartment where that sound is coming from, and hopefully that that cuts down on it a little bit. Uh, you can keep up with all of us at waypoint.vice.com. I'm Rob Zachney. You can find me on Twitter. At Rob Zachney, Patrick, where can people, where can people find you? At Patrick Klubik. Danielle. At Danielle R.I. Uh, and you can find our producer uh, also on Twitter at A underscore Cotto underscore appears. Boom. Done. Let it, let it, let it never be said. I, I, I didn't do anything for you. Uh, <laughs> That'll do it for this week's Waypoints. We hope you've enjoyed the break. Be sure to rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice if it allows such a thing. I think we're a five-star cast, regardless of any audio issues that may crop up, regardless of any artifacts of editing that you may encounter uh, in your time with us. Uh, Nevertheless, bearing all that in mind, I think we're five stars. Uh, We'll be back with Waypoint Radio on Friday. You should also be sure to listen to Be Good and Rewatch It, where this week, me, Danielle, and Natalie revisited Clueless uh, and tackled all the important questions 
about Clueless and its role in 1995's strange and unexpected Jane Austen revival. <laughs> Hope you'll join us for that and join us again next week for Waypoints. But until then, do not give in to astonishment. Beep. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Yay. Oh, you guys could hear it, huh? Yep. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Rob, oh, right there. Rob, Rob oh, to the point God. that um, I thought, because I had this issue a week ago, and so I was yeah. like, God damn it! I thought I I bought a new one. Like, I oh, thought wow. we were so cool. It's like it's so present on the recording that you thought. Well, no, it's so it. present that Discord was switching to your video. Yep. Like it was like, oh, cool, Rob's talking. Switch, and I'm like, beep. But it happened. It would just happen for like a fraction of a second when the beep occurred, and I was like, oh no, that's him. It's him. It's not me. It's not my beep. Yep. Oh, okay. Oh. Um. Awesome. It largely so, happened um, while you weren't talking, so I think they should be uh, mostly yeah. something. Yeah. Hopefully you can out. do the find and replace the version of that that is... Yeah. yeah. Mm. Okay. You really don't? It's not It's not like a thing people say, I don't think. You know, just take them to deep water and drown them. Like, whoever <laughs> told you that, you might want to look back and reevaluate that relationship. <laughs> you know, in like, in I feel boxing, like hang out with Agent Wait, 47 Rob, or something. you watch boxing. You, know, you watch boxing. I see my two-year-old, and I'm just like, hey, you know what they say, Jessica. <laughs> if you don't go potty, you take them to the deep end and drown them. <laughs> Rob, you watch boxing. Not, that's a, that's well, a one, term that's a... for, like, just survive the early rounds, and they'll get tired in the later rounds. That's the deep water, and then you drown them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's so good. I'm like. You know, like, when you got to kill someone, right? Do you know that I'm a normal, well-adjusted adult? Hi. My name's Danielle. Speaking of normal, well-adjusted adults, this combine story is something. Hi, it's really a lot. And speaking of normal, well-adjusted adults, people <laughs> review bombing Captain Marvel. Yep. God damn it. Patrick, what do you think it says that your camera doesn't think you're a person? Oh, I don't know. Well, it's because I I don't like to close the the yeah. light. The like I like the light, <laughs> and yeah. so it fucks with the the focus. It's true. That's true. I could make this room darker, but now you gotta have that light. There's gotta be a way to get that focus just locked in. Uh, I th I don't. I believe I've looked into it. I, I unfortunately I don't think you can do little foundation, little blush. Mm -hmm. well, a little bit. Just something that says like, "Yo, this is a face," and the computer's <laughs> like the autofocus is gonna be like, "That's a face." Just draw a big smile, you know. <laughs> All right, uh, I'm ready to clap in. Oh, I actually have to clap today. Oh my god, this never happens. Yeah. Time that is. Okay, I'm ready anytime.
All right, oh, let's do. Oh, oh, we, we missed oh, the top of the minute. I know. Well, because that's a boring number anyway. So, <laughs> all right. Twenty-seven. Twenty. It's the twenty. Whoa, it's the twenty-seven. Seventeen. Seventeen. Oh, fine. Seventeen. 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 Word. Twenty-seven would be too low. I'd I'd lose it by then. I'd end up screwing it up because I'm, I'm just like <laughs> all too right, much tension fair. built up. Between. I was just like, it's the twenty-seven. <laughs> I mean, fine. fine. If one time we just want to go like, all right, three three minutes from now. Get ready. <laughs> yeah. Uh, real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to get up a minute ago to rip my carbon monoxide detector oh, no. out of the wall. This just only happened to me to, a week ago. Only to discover that I had misidentified the source of the oh, sound. Oh, no. <clears throat> Rob. And it is the upstairs smoke detector. So now I have a little boo-boo in the drywall. And now I've got a smoke detector that is chirping, that is hardwired into the ceiling, and I don't know how to make it stop chirping, but it keeps chirping. And Kato, you're just going to have to monitor the recording for this last 20 minutes to catch that chirp because it's infuriating. You should should just be able Um, to... Screw it off and take the battery out, and the battery should. should yeah, shut yeah. Uh, these are really old. Like, these are like illegally oh, no. old smoke detectors. Oh, good. Um, I have a hole in my ceiling from where the other one uh, <laughs> went because I went to do that, Patrick, and the screws just stripped out of the ceiling, <laughs> oh, uh, and the entire thing just just came down. Uh, and then we looked up the uh, model. Like the like this model does not exist anymore like you're they're they're illegal to install uh anymore so anyway uh point is um got a little got a little problem and i have a (laughs) hole in my wall uh and we're gonna we're gonna work on that uh so anyway getting back to (laughs) it it's all good (laughs) oh hi mark what's good what's what's good is that if he edits it out then it, it, people will just be wondering, what is it? What happened? What did I miss? Because <laughs> you acknowledge that it happened. So definitely edit it out because that's the superior version. The true conundrum. Uh, man, honestly, I have no idea what happens with the final editions of a lot of these episodes. No, like, I'm really curious. Like, kind of I could be getting roasted in the ending all like- the time. <laughs> Like I wouldn't, I would not know. I'd be like, I'm sure, I'm sure Kato represented my interests ably in that, but like, I don't know. Does he? Try my best. A plus. All right. A plus job, Kato. Uh, well, we will leave it there, and we're going to take a quick breath. Uh, ah, 